This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Meg Howry was a professional ballet dancer before she took up the pen, and her background in the performing arts is evident both in the subject matter of her novels and in their deft pacing. Her latest book, They're Going to Love You, is a pitch-perfect tale of creative ambition, betrayal and sacrifice. Set across three decades, from New York City during the 1980s AIDS crisis to present-day Los Angeles, the story unfolds through the memories of its now middle-aged protagonist as she moves towards its final act and the secret lying at its heart. Before Meg joins us from her home in Los Angeles, here's a clip of her narrating They're Going to Love You. Feel what I feel. Stand with your legs together, toes pointing forward. Open your hips so the backs of your knees are touching. Slide the heel of one foot in front of the other until it meets the toes. This is fifth position. Under certain conditions, flexibility, training, your two feet will be firmly locked together, heel to toe and toe to heel. Your knees will be straight. Your pelvis will sit squarely above your knees. It's not natural but it is elegant. Da Vinci's Vitruvian man, but pulled together and not human spreading all over the place. Contained. Fifth is a position to begin things from. Fifth is a frequent point of return. It's also itself. Movement. Dance. Even if it is still. See what I see. James is teaching class. He wears a soft T-shirt and a pair of loose sweatpants. The soles of his dance sneakers are split like ballet slippers, so he can demonstrate a pointed toe more easily. He's a little vain about his feet. They're high arches. And contain, James says, as the dancers close their legs to fifth position. And contain. The class, at an Upper West Side New York City studio, is by invitation or introduction only, and filled with professionals. I picture the dancers, spaced out along the bars lining three sides of the room. I see the additional freestanding bars in the center, a spot where I might have stood. I'm not there. This is part of a story that was told to me. Meg Howry, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you so much for having me. They're Going to Love You is told from the point of view of Carlisle Martin. Could you introduce her to us, please? Carlisle Martin is a woman in her 40s living in Los Angeles. She's a choreographer who's had some success, but is still very much ambitious and hungry for more, um, living the life of a working artist. So she's not a star but she's getting work and she's in the middle sort of of her career and she gets a phone call from her father's partner, who is now his husband, and she's informed that her father is dying and it's going to be soon and she doesn't have much time. 
and we learn in that moment that they haven't seen each other in almost 20 years. So this sets off the course of the book where we follow Carlisle in present day as she makes the decision to go and see her father and we return to the Carlisle of the early 80s and 90s and we see what this family meant to her and what is the thing that broke them apart 20 years before. And the story grows with young Carlisle as well. We first join her when she's 10 years old, heading off for her annual two-week vacation in New York with her father and his partner, James. And she visits them at their rather magical Greenwich Village apartment on Bank Street. And she tells us that visiting that apartment is her favourite entrance to perform. There's a real sense with Bank Street that it is a performance space. It's full of beautiful, often reproduction, antique furniture. Does it have a real-life equivalent, and how important was it as the setting for the majority of the the action of this book? It's true that Bank Street acts almost as a character in the novel. And certainly I wrote the book during pandemic. So I was shut up in my apartment in Los Angeles. And I think remembering the real life counterpart to this place definitely helped fuel the novel. There were, there was an apartment, not on Bank Street, um, but I had friends and mentors in my youth, which I spent in New York City, who had a kind of apartment like that. What I was really, more than the place itself, which I changed for purposes of the novel, what I was after was that feeling as a young person, when you get your first glimpse of what a kind of life that you would like to have would look like. And for Carlisle, stepping into this apartment is to step into sophistication and art and knowledge and a kind of artistic inheritance that she desperately Mm. wants. Absolutely. And she's treated as an adult there. She is only, well, 10 to 18 years old during her years visiting it. And yet, particularly James, her father's partner, wants to pass on all his knowledge and all the things that inspire him to her and and be her teacher in many ways. Yes, it's that first mentorship which can be so important and complicated. I was really interested in looking at the complicated relationship between mentor and mentee the kind of relationship where it's uneven because of the the difference in power, but there's a both a love and awe from Carlisle's point of view. And from James, it's an opportunity to pass on what he knows and what is most important to him. Yes, at one point he says that teaching is hope. And whilst he might have given up on his hopes of being a lead dancer, he can pass on his knowledge to Carlisle to 
hopefully grow her dreams. Right. And, of course, as a young person, when you find someone that treats you seriously and talks to you like an adult, it's this really heady, addictive um, <laughs> uh, relationship. Plus, it's bound up with her feelings about her family and her father, who is this sort of elusive character to her and who she doesn't get to see that often. So it's a way of binding herself to a world that she wants to join. Now, more than once, Carlyle observes that this is a stage set in Bank Street and, and makes the allusions to that. And it's also the place where she is told that it doesn't matter if it's real so long as it's beautiful. And that leads the reader to maybe question quite how perfect this seeming perfect life that James and Robert have is. Right. There is, uh, throughout this notion of performance, and Carlyle is both herself and not herself when she visits. She is on show, and she's aware of that, and she's aware of the performance of herself and trying to be something that she isn't quite yet. And this kind of double life that they all have, they are all on show for each other in various ways until they can't anymore, until the surfaces break. Yeah, and I suppose without stretching the, the whole stage production too far, if there's a, a stage villain and Eminence Grease lurking in the wings, it's AIDS. Robert and James are both gay men. This is the early 1980s and AIDS is beginning to devastate their community and Carlyle cannot stay unaware of what's happening and yet she doesn't really know how threatened James and Robert are. Right. It's this thing that begins to colour their world and because... There are certainly, there's so many good books that have been written about the AIDS crisis. I wanted to find a way in that felt like it could work for this book and this story. And and I was interested in a way as a young person that her lens on this as she's watching this thing, this terrible thing unfold in front of her and she understands only pieces of it at a time. And the trauma, both of what happens and of the people who survived the trauma, is something that is a is a knowledge that takes time for her to come into. So it haunts it haunts the entirety of the book, really. Now you've mentioned the words legacy and inheritance, and though that is a theme that is is central to their going to love you, the most obvious inheritance, I suppose, is that Carlyle is the child of two people who are deeply involved in the ballet world. Her mother trained under George Balanchine and nearly made it. Her father organises a festival of dance and 
in many ways, Carlyle is an heiress of the hopes and expectations of her parents. Even if it's not always voiced, there is encouragement there when she decides that she too wants to try and be a ballet dancer. Yes, I think there is and there isn't uh, central sort of to to Carlyle's characters that she becomes incredibly tall, which for mm. um, anyone, for a woman, is interesting, but for a dancer, makes a career very difficult. And we see her as a young person falling into the dance world and, and you know, sort of as her natural, as you say, inheritance. And we see her mother looking at her and not being quite enthusiastic and we kind of understand that her mother knows it's not it's not perfect fit. Plus, her mother has her own complicated mm. relationship with dance <laughs> and knows what that career can do to a person. So, as as obviously talented as Carlisle is, there is this kind of threat hanging over her career that it might not happen, and she is both the child of people who succeeded in the dance world and the child of people who didn't quite succeed in the dance world. And that inheritance, an inheritance of loss or to come close to a dream and not quite realize it is also part of her emotional inheritance. Yeah, Carlisle gives a very poignant quote when she says, standing on point weaponizes female dancers. But in her case, because she's already tall, she already has a lot of presence, it actually neutralises any power that she has on stage. And that kind of granular knowledge, that kind of understanding of the ballet world is a core part of this book and obviously comes from your own time as a professional dancer. I believe you danced for the Joffrey Ballet and the City Ballet of Los Angeles. Yes, I I was a professional dancer, so that part of the book I didn't have to research. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I did have to do some research for the book, but, but not that. Um, and I had written about dance before in my writing career, and I didn't think I was going to return to it ever until this book kind of came together and I realized there were a few things I still wanted to explore that was said in the world. I should say that always in my head when writing anything to do with dance, I'm really writing towards someone who doesn't know anything about ballet. Mm, mm. It's, it's never my intention to even really lift the veil of, of you know, the mystery of ballet. That That's not really that interesting to me I find the world interesting but this is really more a book about artists and forgiveness and ambition and loss than it is about ballet I think one of the things that really chimed with me and I think anybody who who's even dabbled in the arts is how you capture the sense of an artist having to look at themselves as the audience is going to judge them. 
And uh, maybe that's why you chose the title of the book, because it, They're Going to Love You expresses that that hope and expectation that they are going to love you. But actually, if they don't, then what has the effort been for? And it will crush your spirit. I liked the title because it's both a threat and a promise. Mm. Uh, there's something a little menacing about it. And I think, you know, for most performers and artists, they are work under compulsion. But at the end of the day, yes, there is that awareness of the audience. And will what's inside them have a place in the world or not? It's a kind of a scary question. <laughs> <laughs> and, and added to that, as, as a ballerina, uh, Carlisle and, and maybe you yourself felt the scrutiny of, of the male gaze particularly. Um, and, and that undercuts the self-confidence of the female ballerina on stage. Yes, I was really interested in looking back at the course as an older person now I can look at the career differently um, but certainly when when Carlisle is a student and when she begins to think of choreography the timeline does coincide with my own experience in dance and at that time there were almost no female ballet choreographers working um, I mean of course they existed but they weren't in the same kind of prominence as the male choreographers were. And it was men running companies, men making decisions. For all the primacy of, of the female dancer in ballet, it's really entirely run by men. And that, of course, colors the experience. And for Carlisle trying to find for herself a way into this world as a choreographer, she has to invent the kind of woman and artist that she wants to become. She has nothing to look at, to copy or emulate. Mm. Yeah, it's a complicated relationship, which um, it has both beautiful things in it because, you know, for many women find incredible, wonderful male mentors. A lot of our first, as dancers, our first relationships are are with gay men who become our first champions. So there's a beautiful aspect to that, and then there's also the reverse of that of not of this fight to find our own power and language again in such a gendered art form. And you examine that particularly through the relationship between Isabel, Carlyle's mother, with her choreographer, George Balanchine, who is a, a, a real-life figure, and then the relationship that she chooses to have with Carlyle's father, Robert, who turns out to be gay. Right. There's a little mini novel <laughs> <laughs> for those three characters alone i couldn't not touch george balanchine because it was important for that for isabel carlisle's mother her sort of world and career and what that looked like um, but he is a complicated for me a complicated figure to think about in the dance world because he he's dominated certainly dominated american dance 
in a way that hasn't been repeated. And he had a complicated relationship with his female dancers, which he promoted, fell in love with, married, um, and surrounded with an with an aura of mystique, which mm. you know has a lot of legs. Absolutely, and the sense that this is a novel where, rather like Carlyle, you are choreographing the characters on stage often in threes something that you 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 address later on in the book how people work in triangular relationships and there is a sense that each character has to occupy their space but if they walk outside their space they might cross the line of another dancer on the stage that one of the words that occurs again and again and again in the book is is containment, which can be both positive as a a form of bodily control, but also negative as as a restriction both of movement and expression of feelings. And that's such a cool insight. Thank you. I did think about the way the book felt and looked physically a lot. It's such an embodied book, and the bodies and the spaces of these characters are so important to them. So I was thinking all the time as I was writing about where everyone was emotionally and, and physically, and this very choreographed triangulation between them. I was also thinking a lot about music as I was working on the book, so... I wanted it to have that feeling of, of a sort of orchestral piece. So you would get these themes and variations and repeats and shifts in key the book so that the book would work musically as well as in a in a prose way, if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it does. And also since all the characters are actually quite, large personalities they all behave in character to themselves and that means they sometimes do cross the line unwittingly with the other characters in the novel almost like two dancers nearly colliding on stage and then both staring each other down going no that was your fault <laughs> it's true I was thinking because there is this the thing that happens, a betrayal that happens between these characters. And what I really wanted to reflect was everyone in this situation does something wrong. There's no clean lines to this, which I think happens in life more. It's, you know, in the, in the movie and TV version, there's a villain who does the bad thing and everyone suffers. But in life, ooh, we tend to all get involved in a mistake and so I was interested in the ways each of these characters made mistakes and then held on to their error and the ways that it both broke them and fed them in different ways. Yeah it's definitely a coming-of-age novel not just for young Carlyle coming literally of age but also 43-year-old Carlyle piecing together the fragments that 
caused the rift between her and her father 19 years before, but also actually of James and her father coming to terms with the fact that they can't just shut themselves away in this perfect stage set in Bank Street. Right. It's it's a funny thing as you get older and you realise, oh wait, I'm still coming of age. <laughs> Constantly. Um, mm. And I think if we're, you know, there are places in our lives that force us to, to kind of reckon with our past and our present selves and these characters definitely have these moments where they are forced to reckon with both what they've done and and the choices they've made. And these do propel them into new knowledge of their selves. So it is a, a, a coming of age, really, for all of them. You also have quite a lot of fun with the less glamorous side of Carlyle's life as a choreographer, she has to work with a visual artist called Xavier Alok, and she choreographs a ballet for an animatronic puppet <laughs> for him. And again, I was wondering how much of that actually came from real life. The, the, the lovely description of a man who believes that the idea is all, and that's really all he's going to put in. <laughs> Uh, that is all, all invention, but I was thinking about, uh, for me, you know, one of the interesting things about these careers as artists are these constant, um, the constant juggling you make as an artist between the work that you love or the, the, the work that really inspires you and the work that you need to do to pay the bills. And and that's real too. That's very much part of the career. It's part of every working artist that I know. And I wanted to specifically in this book have these characters live not just in the heady world of a ballet company where you're really sort of isolated in this wonderful, uh, difficult, demanding, but in some ways complete career. And these are these are people that are out there, you know, worrying about how they're going to pay the rent or hold on to their health insurance, which in America is a big issue. So, you know, she's getting jobs in films and television and in this case with a visual artist. And it's an absolutely absurd job. But she takes it because, you know, she needs a new car. Mm. And, you know, that's what being an artist looks like. Yeah. She certainly learns to observe and laugh at the the ironies in life through the book and by the end she's coming out with some pretty snappy epithets i always enjoy your work because you do come out with some great <laughs> one-liners and the pick of the bunch for me in this novel was when carlisle rather wryly observes that falling in love is like dining out you can choose to have the lobster so long as you can live with the cost and the mess and you, you've got a, a lovely, snappy New Yorker turn of phrase to your writing. Oh, thank you. I'm always surprised when I make a joke. It's like, um, I think, I, oh, I must be channeling one of my much funnier friends in that moment. But if, when you spend time with these characters, uh, occasionally they get funnier than you are as a writer. Such a relief. 
And you said you wrote this book during lockdown, and yeah, certainly that comes through the confinement. It felt like a story that had been bubbling away in the back of your head for a long time, though. And you narrate this book yourself, and I know in the past other books you've written, like The Wanderers, have been narrated by other narrators rather than yourself. Is that because this book felt so personal? You felt you had to take it yourself? It's interesting because in some ways the Wanderers, where half the characters are astronauts, in some ways that book felt more personal to me. I don't know if it's that because I was using more things that I had observed more closely in They're Going to Love You that I felt like I needed to take a kind of distance from it, but I don't know. I think all the books feel personal, really, in the end. The decision to narrate it was really that, of all the books I've written, this was maybe the least complicated to narrate. The Wanderers has so many characters and nationalities and genders, and it really needed a great actor to voice everything. And this is a more contained uh deliberately story mm. and I'm kind of good casting for for Carlisle <laughs> we're sort of the same age and um, and I think too maybe I felt a bit protective because there is some ballet language and I didn't want it to sound precious or remote or uh, also get mispronounced and there is a casual very American way of talking about ballet that happens in the book and maybe I felt protective of that but I I do love audiobooks and and maybe it was like the performer in me still wanted one more chance to get on stage well you do a fantastic job I was wondering if you're going to narrate the next novel it <laughs> clearly you enjoyed doing it I did I loved it it was such a nice way to have the book in me one last time because, you know, you, you finish a book, you go through all the copy edits and the process of publishing, and then it, it really goes away from you into other offices and places. And uh, so it was a to get to spend time with it a couple of days in a booth recording was such a lovely last visit to this world that, that had meant so much to me when I was working on it. Well, I want to come on and discuss They're Going to Love You a little bit more after the break and then also branch out into talking about your other writing. But as I say, that'll be after this break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with author Meg Howry about her latest novel, They're Going to Love You. Now, Meg, I read somewhere that you have said, my life's work is to write dances for undanceable things. And we've already talked about the choreography of the book. 
but there's a sense that ballet is not the right medium in which to tell complex or particularly emotional stories. I know you quote George Balanchine in the book as saying there are no mother-in-laws in ballet, which it expresses how two-dimensional some of the relationships can be. Do you feel more freedom writing than you ever did dancing? Oh, certainly. I mean, that is also a reflection of where I was as a dancer. I, I never felt that I ever got to a technical point where I was absolutely free on stage. The way I see some dancers who I think have have really transcended technique and can express all kinds of very complicated things on stage. For me, writing and books were the language that I returned to in the end and, and felt like, oh, this is actually a place for me. I started dancing very young and I thought that was going to be my world, but I was also always a reader. So those two things always lived side by side for me. And in the end, I think it was books and reading where I felt like I could say the most things. The other area where Carlyle finds greater freedom within the book is, as you've already mentioned, through music. And without giving any spoilers for the book, something is unlocked inside her when she is given a very complicated piece of music by Stravinsky called The Firebird to choreograph. And... In some ways, it gives her something to chew on, but it, it's the music that opens the doors of perception for her. Yes, I think it's so interesting. As a dancer, your relationship with music is such that I think all dancers live their lives kind of imagining dance anytime they hear music. You do it sort of automatically, and that... That still is in me, even though I haven't danced in almost 20 years, really, professionally. It's the way I hear music. I see music. So it was fun to imagine a character who could actually do what I don't do and make movement to it. But I think there are probably a lot of parallels between being a choreographer and being a novelist, at least maybe as as I attempt <laughs> to do it. Um I see a lot of parallels between the way those pieces sort of get built in you. And it was fun in the book to show Carlyle get handed this assignment and make along the way lots of crazy, come up with crazy ideas that will absolutely not work, which I think happens mm. in any act of, of making something. You will make so many wrong turns. So it was sort of fun to think of her imagining really ridiculous versions of the Firebird out of frustration because she doesn't quite know what she wants to do or say with that music. I certainly found myself listening to the Firebird for the first time in my life, actually. Oh, what do you think? It's crazy. Um, yeah, and, bonkers. And, but, but I did wonder, were you listening to it whilst you were writing those passages of the book? Because there's there's some angularity and smoothness right next to each other in your writing that felt like it was being channeled straight out of Stravinsky's chords. 
Oh, thank you. That's the best compliment. You couldn't have said anything that would make me happier. <laughs> well done. Um, <laughs> yes, I listened to it a ton and got the score and read books about it and had a musician look at the score with me and talk to me about the orchestration. All of it sometimes feels like the kind of work you do because you can't think of what to write that day, but it it does feed the way you're thinking about the book. And for me, it, it was a constant kind of going back to that score. I listened to about every different version of Firebird I could find, I think, by the end. And you're still listening to it after the book? Uh, <laughs> Well, now I'm writing something else, so I have different things to listen to. But yes, I like Carlisle, I had an initial aversion to the score. It wasn't a ballet that I ever danced professionally, so I didn't really know the music that well. And uh, now, now I think I do pretty thoroughly. <laughs> but I went, I actually, once pandemic was over, uh, the Los Angeles Philharmonic was doing it in performance. And so I got to hear it live. Uh, at Disney Hall here, and it was so amazing to hear it and see it played live. Another artist who plays quite a role in a rather quieter way in the book is the author Henry James. The book starts with an epigraph taken from The Portrait of a Lady, and that novel also plays a part in how Carlyle's mother, Isabel, acquired her stage name. I certainly caught hints of Henry James in the staging of the novel. Um, he's a bit of a favourite of yours as well, is he? He is, <laughs> yes. Um, part of that came from, there was a time in my life, I don't know, maybe I was around 19 or so, where I became convinced that I needed to read all of Henry James. And so I set this as a task for myself. And so the novels are, are really tied to New York, where I was living at the time. They're tied to a time in my life and a feeling in my life. So they're important books for me, and Portrait of a Lady is an important book. And there's, I don't know, maybe something, although, you know, he obviously, Henry James leaves leaves America and lives abroad for most of his life, there is a New Yorkness mm. in a lot of the novels. Um, you know, Washington Square, obviously, but there's some feeling, maybe an, an, an expatriate feeling, too, of a searching quality of a life of the mind and a life of the art that, that exists in his work for me. So, yeah, he found his way into the book. Bless his heart. <laughs> <laughs> you also seem to have a fascination with flight and birds. Your other ballet novel, The Crane Dance, which you've already mentioned, uh, the, the protagonist is called Kate Crane, Carlisle Martin, Xavier Alark. It, there's a bird thing going on. <laughs> You're the first person who has said that to me. And yes, that was deliberate. And I thought an inside joke, but 
you have revealed it. I've outed you. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, everybody got a bird name. And in the new book, uh, are we or, or are you now going to be withdrawing all the bird names because Red has outed you? You have, yeah, you've ruined it. I can't do it anymore. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, you don't just write novels under your own name. You are the co-author of a series of books that you write under the pen name of Magnus Flight that you co-author with Christina Lynch. And they're quite a different pace of novel to your, your more literary novels. They're great adventures with a very strong female protagonist. Would you like to tell us a little bit about them and how they came around? They came around because I met Christina Lynch at a writer's retreat years ago, and she lived near me in California, and we became friends, and we, I think we had like one long kind of dinner with lots of red wine involved, <laughs> and one of us said, why don't we write bestsellers? And we had a good laugh, and I said, well, you know, we, we could how hard could they be? And between the two of us, we came up with the craziest idea for a book. The, the key thing of it was that we would need to go to Prague. Uh, we would be forced to go to Prague and do research. How so, awful. Hey, so how, <laughs> yeah, we're not dumb. I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> set your book somewhere cool. And um, so... It was a game, really, for about a year and a half. Like, I think at one point she looked at Da Vinci Code and said, so in Da Vinci Code, the chapters are really short, so we only need to write sort of six to eight pages a chapter. That seems easy. So she would write a chapter of ridiculous adventure and send it to me, and I would laugh my head off and then send a chapter back. And those were the rules. We would just relay team it. No rewriting until we got to the end. You had to deal with whatever the person sent to you. So if if you got to the end of the chapter and there was a box and it was about to be opened, she would say, "I don't know what's in the box. It's your chapter." Um, or if you you know if you killed off a character, they were dead. You couldn't bring them back. <laughs> so so we did that for a year and a half and thought it was the most you know fun side project and then uh and then someone bought it so <laughs> so the thing got published in the end and uh when we were deciding well how are we going to do this because it's very different writing from from the things that I do and the stuff that she was working on and so we thought well let's publish it under a different name and Magnus Flight was sort of the most absurd name we could think of at the time. And the flight is sort of a reference to Brideshead Revisited novel we thought's love. So so Magnus Flight was born. And then the first book, uh, to our surprise, was quite successful. So we had to do a sequel. Well, City of Dark Magic became a New York Times bestseller. And <laughs> which is just fantastic. And and City of Lost Dreams, its follow-up, which I'm assuming you had to go and slum it in Vienna for a month I or two. I know, the tragedy. 
<laughs> has done equally well. I, I suppose my my only question, I think they're brilliant books. They're full of yeah, magic you. and high art and adventure and mystery and and they're fun. They're really, yes. really good fun. My only question is, you've got a brilliant, strong female protagonist in Sarah Weston, a musicologist. Why did you write with a male pseudonym? Is it still the case, do you think, that that kind of adventure mystery book is associated with male authors like Dan Brown? Thank you. I, I love that you've enjoyed the books. They were such fun to write. And, um, and I, I, you know, I, I have to reread them at some point. I haven't looked at them in a while, but uh, we loved that character. You know, she's sort of a female James Bond, as, as much of as a musicologist can be a James Bond <laughs> character. Um, but she has, yes, she has all the sex and adventures and drug taking and mystery and, um, smarts that anyone could want and at the time when we thought about the name we had just read this long article about who buys books uh this sort of breakdown in gender and there were all this data about how women will buy books by either gender but men usually only buy books written by men or majority and we thought, well, this is such a sly thing to use a man, a ridiculous man's name to women, um, sort of like to trick, <laughs> to trick <laughs> men into reading our book about this very naughty female musicologist. So, at the time, it seemed like a fun joke um, to to take on a male name for them. I don't know if we'd do the same thing now. It, it, it certainly was just at the time we thought we thought it would be funny. Well, and yeah, and I think times have moved on both in the sense of recognising different genders and in adopting names that are gender fluid. So Exactly. I, is there a third one on the way for those of us who are waiting with bated breath? <laughs> I mean, I think... Magnus Flight is sort of lost. I forget where we last left him. I, I believe he was on the Isle of Mull, we decided. Mm. You know, Christina has now written two books under her own name. The last one came out a few months ago called Sally Brady's Italian Adventure. It's great fun. Uh, and I think we both, as much fun as we had writing the books together, it's difficult and it was time consuming. It was a lot of research and a lot of work. And in the end, you know, we're more committed to where we are as writers apart. And so it was, it was kind of a fun interlude. Um, but never say never. Who knows? Magnus Flight may come again. I mean, things usually work in three. So there is a third book that could get written. And there's plenty more cities to go and stay in. Exactly. <laughs> in the meantime, and to whet listeners' appetites further, here's a clip of Natalie Gold narrating City of Dark Magic. Sarah enjoyed the early morning high-speed ride back to Prague in Max's red Alfa Romeo convertible, a lot more than the trip out to Nella in the Skoda with Eleanor. The car was incredible. 
Max told her it was a 1930 6C-1750 Grand Sport that his grandfather had raced as a young man. It looked like new, which gave riding in it a weird time-warp feeling. She might have enjoyed it even more if she wasn't holding a priceless violin in a blanket. In the early morning light, she had examined the instrument and found its mark. Granchino, Anno 1699. Worth more than her mother's house. And yet another item that belonged to the man in the driver's seat. The night before, despite the electricity generated by the kiss, Max had shown her to a cot in what he called the Blue Room and had discreetly disappeared to some other part of the castle. This morning in the car, he was all business, and so was she. Max said he would develop the film from the camera, and Sarah offered to pay a visit to Sternberg Palace, where Andy worked, to see if she could find out anything. Max handled the interminable traffic jam that was Prague Center with reckless style, and Sarah clutched the Granchino to her chest. When Max spun the sports car through the castle gates, it was still early enough that the hordes of tourists had not descended. The massive verdigree bulk of St. Vitus Cathedral looked a little forlorn in the morning light. I'll leave you here, Max said. Do you have my cell number? He took out his phone and then frowned. I know this will sound paranoid, he said, but I think my phone is tapped. What, by the government or something? Sarah raised an eyebrow. I have enemies, Max said cryptically. We'll have to do this the old-fashioned way. Natalie Gold, narrating City of Dark Magic, written by my guest today, Meg Howery, in collaboration with Christina Lynch, under the pen name Magnus Flight. Meg, are you allowed to tell us anything about the new novel that you're working on at the moment, or is it still very hush-hush? It's a little hush hush. I'm, I'm writing two things right now, which I've never done before. But I had two ideas, and right now they're sort of in a race to claim the attention. But I think one, one is a historical novel, so it will take more time to do the research. So that one's on the slow burner, and then, and then I have something I'm about midway through. I can't exactly say what it is because I don't know what it is yet (laughs) (laughs) there's always a fun moment when you finish a book and you hand it to your you know your closest readers and you say you know tell me what you think and you have certain questions and then usually the last one is can you tell me what it's about (laughs) because I'm (laughs) I might have lost that somewhere along the way well I'm guessing also that you are a very keen reader. All the best authors are. So I think it's time to ask you about the books of your life. Oh, yay. Yay. (laughs) So, Meg Howery, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? This is such a difficult question. I'm not the first person to say that to you. Um, as I was thinking about it, I kept returning to my beloved copy of Little Women and why I loved that. I think the reason I loved that book so much was that it was long. It was maybe the first long novel I read by myself. And there was such a delicious pleasure in knowing that it was long, that I could just keep reading. It wasn't going to finish. I could spend days and 
for me, as a person, I don't know, who's a, if you're a novelist, you're a distance runner. You're a, you're a long time frame person. And for me, to, to sit with characters and a story for a long time is the most beautiful, luxurious thing. So it's, it's possibly Little Women. And there were these four girls, and each had a different sort of relationship to, to the world and, and the kind of women they were becoming. So you could imagine yourself as each of them, which has a budding performer and as a person who loves to sort of project and take on the costumes and feel of other people. It was a perfect book. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? I'm so committed to the Cazalet Chronicles, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Jane Howard's long series of novels in World War II. Um, I love, actually, I love these as audiobooks too. And I just was reading, it's Jill Balcon who reads them. Yeah. Who I think was the mother of Daniel Day-Lewis, mm -hmm. um, but celebrated British actress, and she does an incredible job with the audiobooks. I love them, again, long form. They're not going to be over soon. You can really sink in. Huge cast of characters, and we get every delicious detail of their lives. Um, she has this perfect descriptions of what people are wearing, what they're eating, what the street looks like, what the house looks like. These fantastic lived-in characters uh, absolutely sweep me away every time. Perfect. A lot of rainy days. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They're also, I recommended them to people going through breakups and divorces and uh medical crises because they're so immersive that um yeah it's my my best oh you just broke up with someone recommendation Cazalet chronicles every time dr meg's cure-all yes <laughs> <laughs> and finally is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners i just came across um i i read it at a few months ago, and I, I'm returning to it now, Agatha of Little Neon. Mm. It's this novel by Claire Luchette. I think it's her first novel. Um, it's about a group of nuns in upstate New York, and they're just, they're, it's a perfect novel. It's a, a small glimpse into something that then just becomes so wide and expensive, and it has this perfect wonderful voice and um, i've been recommending that novel to everyone agatha of little neon by claire luchette well meg howry thank you so much for sharing your obvious joy of reading with us today and for giving us greater insights into your own writing it's been lovely to spend the afternoon with you thank you so much for this it was really a pleasure thank you it's time to turn the page on this edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Meg Howery, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. 
keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.